my PhD experience podcast. The podcast devoted to graduate students, aspiring students, early career researchers interested in learning tips to help them get hired in graduate school and excel as a researcher. I am your host, Anthony. Welcome to another episode of my PhD experience podcast. Today I have an important uh, guest on my podcast, um, which is someone I admire so much, and um, we've collaborated, we've um, known each other now for in South Africa and then for a pretty long period of time. But um, and uh, she's done excellent work on uh, NCD research. But let me just allow her to introduce herself. So welcome, Dr. Itai Olavi. Can you introduce yourself? Thank you, Dr. Ajayi. My name is Dr. Itai Olavi. I'm a nurse by profession, and I'm currently a postdoctoral fellow at Arizona State University in Phoenix, United States of America. Um, my research focuses around non-communicable diseases and cardiometabolic risk factors, and precisely around diabetes, and I'm committed to research looking at ways of improving outcomes for those living with diabetes and reducing the risk of developing diabetes among those who are obese or pre-diabetic. So that's pretty much what I do. Yeah, th- thank you for honoring um, my invitation. And, uh, you know, as I said, to our listeners, yeah, this is someone I, I, I know pretty well and we've um, worked together. I always ask uh, all the guests on this podcast, how they decided to pursue a PhD, what motivated them. So I guess um, that's a good way to start. So how, when did you realize that you want to pursue a PhD and what, uh, what informed your decision? What motivated you? Okay, I think I, even though it wasn't so clear at the beginning whether I wanted a PhD or not, but towards my final year as an undergrad and then during our clinical postings I realized that I wanted to do more than being a bedside nurse and I wanted to do more of uh, research and be in the academia so that, that actually prompted me to go for my master's degree in South Africa so I only practiced as a nurse for two years and then I went to South Africa for my master's degree and immediately after that, I decided to take on my PhD degree. So basically, I wanted to be uh, in academia and I wanted to do research. And that was what prompted me to pursue a PhD degree. Now, wow, that's interesting. You know, I know uh, many listeners are also perhaps um, thinking they don't want to uh, practice and then they want to do PhD. So can you take me through between deciding to, you know, go into academia and then making the journey into South Africa? How did that go? Why South Africa? Because again, the destination used to be, or is still, they say US, UK. Why South Africa? Take me through the journey. Okay. um, I think basically it depends on how much information you have and how much resources you have at your disposal. So... As I then, when I finished my undergrad program, 
the first person that I met and actually told me about postgraduate studies was heading to South Africa for a doctoral degree. So that was how I got to know about the potentials of doing a postgraduate degree in South Africa. I I would have loved to come to places like the US or the UK, but as at that time I couldn't afford it. So I felt like South Africa was affordable. I was told about the potentials of getting uh, assistantship positions, of getting tuition waivers, especially at the university that I graduated from, from. And I think that was basically what prompted me. I felt I could afford it to some extent, even though that wasn't the reality eventually. But um, I think it all depends on the information you have. So the information I had then was about South Africa and also my resources uh, could only afford me to go to places like South Africa. I couldn't afford to come to the U.S. at that, that time. So that was what led me to South Africa or how I got to South Africa. Now, I think it's, it's actually revealing that you said your resources could only afford South Africa, but in the same breath, you also said that the information you had, had was also not uh, completely accurate. Perhaps you could be more elaborate by what you meant by uh, the information wasn't as accurate as you expected. Okay, um, uh, not so much about the accuracy, but uh, I wasn't so enlightened or aware about the opportunities you have in places like the U.S. Because my my belief or my mindset then was that uh, U.S. is expensive. Of course, that's still true till today. But then I did have an understanding that you could apply for bursaries uh, or awards that could probably offset your school fees, even though that's not often uh, feasible. But I, I I know people who use that opportunity. People who are doing their masters and they are fully funded. But I was not aware of all those opportunities then. So all I knew then was that you can do your postgraduate studies in South Africa. They pay your school fees. It's affordable. And that was, that was it. So now, now that you are in, in South Africa, I think you spoke about opportunity of getting uh, teaching assistantship and, and, and all that. So was the money you were able to get uh, the, the, it was the money meet your expectations yeah. was it definitely not. To, to, to run your master's program definitely not so before I left Nigeria I had some savings which wasn't so much but I was so much depending on the assistantship position when I got to South Africa that didn't even come true, like there were changes in policies and rules or regulations. So even when I started the assistantship position, I wasn't getting much money. I mean, the hours you allowed to work was significantly reduced. So I could only work for very few hours and I could only make a very little amount of money. So that did not eventually work. It was a big struggle, I must tell, but I had to depend on friends for support, uh, learn some skills that could earn me some money, and that was how I managed and 
managed to finish my program, but it was not rosy at all. It was not easy. The assistantship did not even come through as I expected. Even the little I got was not enough for me to feed myself or even pay my rent. So um, I think it was basically the support of friends, families, and me acquiring some skills that could generate funds. And that was how I managed to pull through. So, yeah, I don't think a postgraduate study is is uh, attainable or achievable without good financial support. So people who are thinking about it must also think towards that uh, condition. Yeah, I think um, one thing that is uh, significant is, um, you know, the challenge people face uh, when you leave your country, especially if you say you want to self-fund your degree like you did. I know of um, people that also, you know, experience uh, similar challenges in South Africa, so many Nigerians. In fact, a guy told, confided in me that there was one time he thought of giving up completely. I'm not going to mention his name, but it's also someone you know. And he, he was like, he had no money, he had no food to eat, and he was so hungry and he went for three days without eating because there was nothing to eat and eventually someone then gave him uh, maybe ten, 10 rand to buy bread and he, he had to eat it and uh, for I think another two days before he then managed to get some money back home from Nigeria again just to highlight the difference or the disparity between your expectation and, and, and eventually where you get there. But I think uh, the important, the, I think the joy of the story is actually the resilience as opposed to the um, to the hardship itself, the story of um, of victory despite all the orders and and and, and uh, despite all the challenges. And especially for you being a, a lady, you know, most times you probably expect that uh, uh, ladies would not uh, take such. Uh, such a uh, risk, especially if there is no assurance that the, the money will be there uh, eventually when they get it. But uh, but then it speaks to perhaps uh, your your determination. That is for your determination. What prompted you into the program? I think it, it depends a lot about what uh, what prompted you into going into the program. Were you coerced into doing it? Did you really want to do it? for yourself and for a purpose and are you determined to do it because a lot of things will happen on the way a lot of circumstances will crop up that might really discourage you i've also had that thought like you were talking about about the guy i also had instances that i really wanted to give up not because i wanted to give up but because i it seems to me then that i had no option but to give up i couldn't pay rent or feed myself or even meet up with a lot of expectations, but I, I kept on persevering. And I would encourage anyone to just keep pushing because you never know when the opportunity is going to come. Like I was telling my story about how difficult it was, but at the same time, I would like to share the nice part of it because my first year was very tough. I almost gave up, but the second year was fun because as limited as uh international funding where at that time I was still able to secure one for myself and even at the point when I was applying it didn't look like there was hope for international folks to get that funding but I managed to 
to get the funding it was successful and no one would have told me that uh, it was going to be successful but was just born out of uh, me being determined to just complete my program and giving it my best so sometimes the road might might look so rough at the beginning but there is hope at the end of that journey and if if we persevere and we give it our best yeah yeah i think perseverance is really really important um especially for anyone leaving leaving your country to 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 study abroad <laughs> and especially if you are now awash with money but uh, but i think the significant thing is you know you it was tough at the beginning but by the end of the year you managed to secure funding perhaps you want to talk more about the funding itself the what funder? name of the application and what do you think um, made your application competitive and successful oh well um the name of the funder is south african national research foundation nrf it's called nrf but it's the south african national research foundation and it's open to both uh, national and international scholars but the percentage apportioned to uh international folks is quite low i think about maybe eight or even less than that eight percent or even less than that so it's, it's a very slim chance of getting a review an international student but um i think one makes the novelty of whatever you're doing matters a lot and the way you put in the, your grant and the significance of that project that you're proposing i wouldn't say this is what Oh uh, this was what made my application stand out but I think it was uh I guess it was significant enough or novel enough to to be funded I think women are given slightly more consideration than men because women in in science have not that much but I'm not sure if that was also a reason because I I know a lot of women who applied and did not get it So I think it depends on the quality of the work you're proposing, the novelty and the significance of the work. Yeah. You know, I I must say that um you know, I, I met uh, Dr. Isayo when uh, she was doing her masters and I was uh, super super surprised to um learn about the work and for me It's probably one of the reasons why um your application was successful because for a master's degree at the time you were using the WHO stepwise uh, tool which contains yeah. yeah questionnaire which contains over 500 questions and you were going to interview over 1000 uh, participants not only interview them you were also going to take their uh measurement blood pressure yeah, blood sugar, pressure, yeah, blood sugar if circumference weight circumference body weight um height that seemed like a lot of work so even if I were a reviewer and you know I saw a master student proposing to do such a, a significant work I probably would recommend the the the, the, the student for funding so I think uh, the merit of your work itself was probably uh, the mm-hmm. reason why why you received such a 
very competitive for and I must say it's really really competitive competitive in the sense that there is an allocation even for uh, foreigners with uh, uh, permanent residents which is around which is even the greater portion of the uh, proportion allocated to to foreigners so it's like 90% goes to foreigners 90% goes to South Africans I think 50% to black South African women, 40% to South African men, then 10% to foreign. About of that, uh, I think about 5% for those that have permanent residence, and then maybe 5% uh, for the rest. And then there's also every bias towards uh, science, as opposed to social sciences and all that. Uh, yeah. But um, yeah, you want to add anything? Yeah, I agree that. Um definitely the novelty and the merit of the work is quite important. So at, at that time, when I was doing my master's degree, there was an obvious uh, gap or obvious problem which I observed, which was the high prevalence of cardiometabolic risk factors. So just based on observation, and I had not even searched the literature to understand what the burden was like. So then I then checked the literature and found that there wasn't even anyone basically doing or looking into that problem in that in that province. And the province is also a province of interest because it's, it's one of the poorest provinces in South Africa. And uh, it's obvious that the, the, the gaps in literature are there and the, the, the cardiometabolic profile of people is so, just so bad. So I committed to understanding uh, I committed to obtaining data to sort of have a record of how much of a problem uh, cardiometabolic risk factors was at the time in the absence of any existing study. And then I also, I screened a whole lot of people for, for those cardiometabolic risk factors. It was tough. And then I also focused, I, I went to different areas, including the underserved communities. So I guess all of that uh, sort of added to the merit of the work. So, yeah, it was a whole lot of work. Yeah, it was. And and I think for me, the significant thing then, because then I was also preparing to... And that's how we get to, to uh, meet each other, right? Of course, yeah. Of course, I think we, both, uh, we, we met... Uh, we both, but we we did both not, attended the, yeah, the, the funding... Um, yeah, but, but workshop, yeah, yeah, but we didn't get to to speak at all. No, that was the first time I sort of uh, that was the first time I had seen you. And then I think the only the, the time we met was when you yeah, needed uh, uh, someone to run the analysis for you. Yeah, and let, let me let me let, I, I think I need to tell this story, and because I think <laughs> it's, it's such an inspiring story um, for for our listeners. So you know. Um, I think your sponsor. I don't know how it happened. You see, your sponsor recommended I, I run your analysis, right? Definitely, yeah. And then gave gave you my number. Yeah, I guess that was what happened. Yes, yes. Cool. And then I reached out to you, yeah. and I showed you my tool. And uh, by the time I spoke to you already, I've already captured all the data. No, so you, you haven't. Okay, I, I didn't know how to capture that. So yeah. I met you, I showed you my tool, and then you taught me how to capture uh, data from your ad questionnaire onto Excel. 
spreadsheet and then I sometimes people give that kind of work to people to do for them because it's a whole lot I had over a thousand participants that I needed to capture their responses but because I wasn't so financially buoyant I had to commit to doing it and you put me through the steps of capturing the data then I start with with all the questionnaires and I captured them all by myself within I don't know I think it took it took me a few weeks and that was also surprising to you because you felt it would take longer but because I was just dedicated to finishing the work I was able to capture it and even when we started the analysis you as a statistician and a doctoral student felt that the work was quite huge or I might not be able to complete it within the time that I had because there was a whole lot of variables to analyze and data to, to look into. But my supervisor was like, no, you have to do it and you have to just complete it. So we carried on. But I'll let you... Yeah, let, um, me, let, me tell, yeah. Let, me tell, let me tell the story. Because so for me, uh, I, maybe I have my own spin to the story. So here you yeah. are with these uh, two. We met, I think, um, yeah, we met in... Uh, I think in my office, I believe. Yeah. And uh, it coincided with the time I was also planning to go to Nigeria to collect my data. So, and I was like, uh, and I think I told you that I booked my tickets. I'm traveling maybe in two weeks or maybe in three weeks or maybe four weeks. I can't remember specifically the details, but the time mm-hmm. was really tight. And so I was like, okay, maybe you just need to collect your data. Capture it when I return, I will run the analysis for you. And you were like, mm-hmm. No, you were able to capture it. And I'm like, Okay, let's see let's see the miracle you would perform. So you would collect data during the day and then go to the go go and sleep in the I think your spouse's office to capture yeah. the site. And you know, like play I'm like play. Right. By the time you are completing the data collection, you are also completing the data capturing. And I'm like, What? This is like a miracle to me because I, I I just couldn't reconcile how someone could spend so much energy during the day, you know, doing this data collection and still, you know, go to the to go to school at night to do the capturing, which is really really boring. Capturing data really? is really really boring. And the tool itself is huge with over with close to 500 questions, if I'm not mistaken. Or at least 300 questions, between three to 500 questions, if I'm not mistaken. And for you to do all that, I'm like, wow, this is special. This is something, something special, spectacular. And I was not surprised, uh, really, when you you also you know showed interest in learning how to run the analysis. I was supposed to say, now nah, I've captured the data. You run the analysis for me. You were so keen about learning to run the analysis uh, yourself. Um, just seen an opportunity to learn a new skill and i was like wow you know usually people always say yeah i'm paying you you just you just do the work they even want you to write the resource section for you not only running the analysis they expect you to also write uh, uh the result but in your own case you really really wanted to learn how to run how to run the analysis and i must say that once i run one analysis you then you know run with the rest because it was also a lot of work to, to, to put all the tables together and uh, yeah and just learning to do that. Yeah, I, I believe that was an accurate reflection, but that was my memory. <laughs> yes, yes, that's very accurate and true. <laughs> you know, sometimes when you do stuff, you don't do 
you don't even pay attention like I was at that time I was just like I just want to do this work and finish and learn and everything so it seemed like it's normal to me but it's actually not uh easy it's not even easy to do it was quite a risky uh adventure that I took then I remember almost getting robbed uh when I was going home after capturing during the night and having to go home to have my bath in the morning and then almost getting robbed in the process so it's it's a journey that I can't forget very easily but yeah yeah <laughs> it's I so nice also, I think also I think, I think also the significant thing is is the determination I mean it's so visible yeah. for anyone to see and and uh, you know even when it comes to also learning how to write papers um I was also surprised with the number of papers you you wrote from the thesis. You want to speak about you know that journey of also turning those um, uh, the, the work into papers? Yeah. Um, so immediately I started my master's program. My supervisor was so uh, keen about me learning how to write, and if you work with him. I don't think you can escape writing articles. So he had introduced me to manuscript writing, even uh, from using my undergrad thesis. And then when I had my master's data, I had to like write. So I would make, so not that comfortable or so easy at the beginning, but I was determined to learn and it's just an important, Kill for anyone that wants to go into academia for research. So I had to sit, do literature review, write, ask questions from my supervisor, from uh, colleagues, from mentors, and put papers together. It took me some time to learn, but with time, I got comfortable doing that. And from my master's project, I think I had about 10 publications from that. And that was also what uh, what led me into my PhD uh, project. My PhD project was an addendum or like uh, an extra piece of my master's project informed my doctoral project. But from my master's data alone, I was able to publish uh, not less than 10 manuscripts or articles from that. So yeah. Yeah, so <laughs> I mean, you heard it for yourself. That's also yeah. huge. That's also significant for for a master's thesis. But of course, you know the data is there from from using that uh, U two, uh, and then the measures are there. All those anthropometric measures, measures of hypertension, diabetes, you know, all, all those things are there, and they they are also important as well. And they're important papers, you know. Now let's uh, discuss your PhD. Because I mean, yeah. this podcast is about your your PhD um, experience. So, take me through the journey from your master's now to PhD. Okay, um, I knew, of course, from the moment I signed up for my master's that I was going to do my doctoral program. So, um, so it was not negotiable for me. I I enrolled my PhD program immediately after my master's. In fact, I was already getting ready 
for the PhD program before I graduated for my master's program because I already had an idea of what I wanted to do and that was like filling a gap that I observed from my master's degree uh, uh, findings. So I wanted to do an intervention to to address a problem that I observed, which which was high rate of undiagnosed diabetes and uncontrolled diabetes. So I wanted to do an intervention to help uh, to to support people that were living with diabetes. So I already had that idea of the project that I wanted to execute. And even before my before I registered, before I graduated from my master's, I'd already started putting together my proposal for for my doctoral uh, degree project. I was even able to apply for funding before starting the PhD project because uh, the NIF allows you to apply in advance as long as you show that you're completing your master's. So then I'd already submitted my master's thesis and so I was able to to to, to submit a, a funding application for my PhD which was like a build on of the work I was doing at master's level. So so still the same supervisor, the same school. Even though at that point I wanted to change my institution, I wanted to go to one of the top three universities in South Africa. But again, I was unable to do that because of financial reasons. So I just had to just uh, continue my journey at the same place. And I, I think uh, that was how I got into the PhD program. Yeah, I think um, just saying that you wanted to provide the intervention may not necessarily uh, do justice to, to the nature of the work uh, you did. Perhaps you want to speak about your topic and okay, you so, have to sign a bit. Yeah. yeah, so my PhD project was a randomized control trial looking at the efficacy, the acceptability and the feasibility of mobile health technology in improving adherence to anti-diabetic medications and glycemic control. So basically what I was trying to do was uh, to stop, to provide support to people who were living with diabetes and they had poorly controlled diabetes. When you have a poorly controlled diabetes, then you are at high risk of having complications like like kidney failure, like retinopathy, like eye issues, uh, heart issues, your foot uh, issues, and so much more complications, which makes life difficult, which makes life more expensive, which makes healthcare more expensive, and even place burden on the already overstretched uh, health healthcare system. So I wanted to, I, I, I found that the people living with diabetes had a significant proportion of them were poorly controlled. So I wanted to support them. I wanted to teach them. I wanted to, to have a means of empowering and educating them about how they can do better with their diabetes and reduce their risk of developing complications. So I thought of using technology because uh, access to technology was already like improved at the time and even still improving and people are leveraging that uh, opportunity to improve access to care for people, especially those in the rural areas. So I was using text messaging. I decided to use text messaging, which was a simple platform, simple technology platform then to educate people using evidence-based guidelines on what they're supposed to do, what they're supposed not to do, remind them of their appointments, remind them of the need to take their medications. And then I did that uh, for six months 
I obtained data at baseline and then at three months and then at six months and I wanted to see if that intervention which was daily text messaging to educate diabetic people if it was going to have impact on their adherence level if it was going to have impact on their glycemic control and even if it was going to be acceptable because most of those patients or those participants were old they were very old people they were less educated they were based in the rural areas so i wanted to see the feasibility of using text message to to educate people and i wanted to see if they felt uh if they felt comfortable comfortable with that and it was acceptable so that was the major focus of the phd uh, project yeah again another ambitious project uh, for someone that is, does not you know already have uh, resources to do the, the the program but i think i think yeah. that's one thing that is also unique about you are always quite uh, positive and, uh, and uh, ambitious as well you don't you allow your current uh, situation to to determine how you <laughs> what you want to do you know and i think i like that about you um being able to to remain positive even in spite of not having resources. Because again, our, our city is usually, usually expensive. In fact, people spend millions of dollars to rule out our cities. Um, take me through that journey from uh, your enrollment to, to, to implementing your, your research. How was the experience? The experience? How do I describe it? It was not easy at all. I even got to the point that I was like, why did I choose this project? One, it was a randomized controlled trial, so the design needs a whole lot of uh, uh, knowledge and expertise. And then I had to do a whole lot of personal studies and research to understand how it works and how to implement that. So that was the first order that I had to, 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 to pass, to jump. So I had to learn how to do RCTs, how to randomize people, how to even analyze that data. So, so, so that was a whole lot of self-learning there. And then when it comes to the implementation of the project, so I used six different study sites and most of them were in rural areas so i would travel i don't drive i don't know how to drive i still don't drive <laughs> so um i didn't have a car then i don't drive until now so i would have to up on the bus up on the bus from my location to these rural areas sometimes i would travel over the weekend lodge I didn't even have money to lodge in, in, in these places. So sometimes I would have to plead with people working at the healthcare facilities to stay with them or to make uh, manage with them. So it was so difficult because I also did not have funding at first. I didn't have funding for the first day. I didn't have funding for the second year. So I had to just make, um, um, manage the limited resources that I had. I even got to the point of wanting to drop the idea but with the support of friends I was able to pull through friends had to raise resources for me because I needed a whole lot of resources to implement this I had to test those people for their blood glucose level at three time intervals I had to pay I had to pay for the SMSs which was daily daily SMSs for six months I had to pay that out of pocket 
I had to hire research assistants because most of the participants are old people, they are less educated, they don't speak English. And if you are doing research, if, even if you're doing research, even if you're doing research with people that speak English, sometimes they just want to speak their local language. So I had to hire people who could speak the language. I had to go with them. So you mean, you know, that means double or triple expenses or even four times the expenses that you're going to make because you have to lodge four people or three people in the hotel. You have to feed them. You have to pay for their transport. Yeah, so, uh, you have to pay for the so services they So it was quite expensive. Uh, man and to challenging. Um, you have to also learn how to, to be manage, able to manage uh, them. You have to that you're um, working with sometimes. To manage have to sometimes training extra people and putting them on standby for me so that when one just point then I go with the other so it was a whole lot lot of uh, work to get that done and I had to do that three times I had to do the data collection three times and it means I had to go through that exit journey three times and then to also get the participants to keep them to, 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 to prevent attrition of them being lost to follow up you have to keep in touch with them. I had sometimes I have to call relatives to get hold of a participant that I can't find at the clinic or even get hold of over the phone. So it was, it was quite tough. And the resources also was, uh, the resources needed was a whole lot. And yeah, I, I appreciate uh, friends' support. I appreciate, basically it was uh, my friends that supported me and enabled me to, to complete that project because I had already exhausted all of my savings. So yeah, but when I look back today, I, 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 I appreciate the fact that I did not give up and that has opened a lot of opportunities for me and... Uh, yeah, your story is uh, you know, truly one of um, shared determination, uh, resilience, you know, just positivity, just keep pushing and then uh, no people there. For the best, and uh, yeah, I mean, and and I like how you ended your response. Your response by saying, you know, looking back, you were yeah, really happy and proud that you didn't give up, and that that's uh, I think that's a remarkable lesson for anyone listening. You know, that PhD is not going to just be smooth sail and sailing ride. There will be bumps on the way, and um, we we all have to, you know. Um, cross through those uh, bumps and 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 I I think that's what even makes you a better researcher at the end of the day. But there's always light at the end of the tunnel. So perhaps you can talk to us about the the funding that you initially got. Yeah. So um, for the first year, like I mentioned earlier, before I even commenced the doctoral program, I started applying for funding, and it's to the same funder, which was the National Research Foundation of South Africa. So I applied for the first year, I was declined. I applied the second time, I was declined. And at that point, I was already almost done with my, I was already like getting towards the end of my data collection because I still kept on going despite all the 
rejections or just by the rejections of funding. So just when I thought of giving up, I decided to give it to give it one more shot. And then I applied again the third time to the same funder about the same project. And then it was funded. And uh, that was my, like my, can I say compensation? Because I spent a whole lot on that project. So I was already like financially down or I was so broke at that time, but I decided to give it a shot again. And then I was successful. So it, uh, it just um, meant to me that the project wasn't, the project had merit. Probably the funding was just limited initially because I did not change anything about the project and yet it was funded. So it means the project had married, the project was good enough. It was just probably because I was an international scholar and though, and so the proportion of funding for us was limited and so I couldn't get the funding. So eventually I got the funding for the third year and that enabled me to complete the program uh, in a better way than I started. So, yeah. Yeah, I think there is one thing you did not um, um, talk about in terms of um, um, funding your PhD. Uh, <laughs> and that is besides maybe support from friends, which I believe is minimal. Okay. But you yeah. Were able to, you know, other things you were able I to was, Yes. So, um, going back to the start of those podcasts, I mentioned me always to learn and acquire skills that would be useful for me. So right from my master's day, I was already learning statistical analysis and I learned data capturing with my own master's data. So I was comfortable doing that. So that was also a major, a major contributor to my success because I was able to work for people. I was able to uh, support people on their own project. I had some experience that I could transfer to people. I could help people on the field to execute their own data collection. I, like I said earlier, a lot of people don't have the time to sit down on the computer to capture data. So I do that work for people. I help people capture. I work on people's projects. I capture data. I do statistical analysis. Most times I would sit with my friend Dr. Ajayi, who, is also, who, who was the one that introduced me to statistics and taught me how to run statistics. We would do it together. We would share the money we get from uh, people who give us those assignments. So that was also like a source of income for me. So the skills that I acquired basically for my own project turned out to be a source of income for me. And it was a major, yes, it was a major contributor to my success. I did a whole lot of work. So sometimes I would work over the weekend for people. Sometimes I would work in the evenings. I would work in the morning. And at the same time, I had to keep my study going. I had to just figure out how to deal with that. So there was never any time to rest. So either I was working on my own project or working to get money to fund my project. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, looking back, I mean, this, and I'm, I'm, and I'm, and I'm happy you're telling your story on, 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 on my PhD experience podcast because this is so, so important. Because, I mean, maybe 20, 20 years from now, you might not be able to remember all the details. So, this is going, perhaps going to be like a 
something to, to more like a memorial for, for you know but I think it's always important to tell all these stories because you know someone might see you now and become jealous and be like ah, look at this uh, small, small girl and because of your stature <laughs> yeah, but they wouldn't know what you've actually gone through uh, the, the hard work uh, the sacrifice um, just to, to be where you are you know, okay. people people always see the sources, but they don't always know the story behind it. So, so yeah. But now that you um, finish your PhD, um, take us through uh, the your many successes. Now, that's how I want to characterize it post PhD, and now oh. and now those ones came about. Okay. Um. Yeah, so like I said from the beginning that uh, there is always uh, light at the end of the tunnel. So it was so tough doing all of this. It was painful. It was it was like a, not a torture, but it was just too much. Like I remember breaking down and crying one day in my friend's office. And then I, so all of that, they were not easy, right? But sometimes now I feel so happy and I would take you through my journey. So after my, even at the end of my doctoral degree, I, I didn't know where. I, I, of course, I knew where I wanted to be. But because uh, you are a foreign person in a foreign land, you know your chances are limited and everything. You just don't even know what is, what is out there for you. So... Then, okay, the first thing I did after my PhD, before I graduated, was to put in an application for a postdoctoral fellowship with the same funder for my master's and my doctoral program. So I applied, I, I told them that I was, I was sure that I was going to make it and complete my PhD. And then I wanted to do a postdoctoral fellowship in the same institution the following year so I made that application first and then I had to go back home to Nigeria I went home I got married I went home I just went home because I wasn't sure what was going to happen so and then I kept applying I reached out to people sometimes you don't get those job adverts that you're expecting or looking for but you must be uh, you must be how do I say you must be um I don't know. I I, I think you reaching, out to, reaching out to yes. You must you must be proactive. You must be proactive. Mm-hmm. So you have to keep looking for opportunities even where there are no opportunities. So you have to reach out to people in your field. Reach out to people that might be interested in your work, or reach out to people that you might that seen their work and you are interested in, and look for opportunities. Sometimes opportunities are not like there or like on the table or or advertise so you have to look for the opportunities so i remember someone sending me uh an advert for master's funding not necessarily for me but she sent it out on a group and the 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 professor was looking for a master's student so i said to myself like i'm not a master's student i'm not even a phd student but i'm going to reach out to this person because I'm sort of interested and it's one of the universities that I've always aspired to to be. So I decided to reach out to this person and I was like, 
um, I saw your advert about master's funding. I'm not a master's student. I'm actually looking for a postdoctoral uh, opportunity. And then she, she didn't respond. And then I followed up again and I was like, I'm following up on my email. And that was when she responded. That time I was out of the country. I was in the U.S. attending a conference. And then she responded and she was like, can you do an interview tomorrow? I knew I was going to be on the flight. Wow. <laughs> and I didn't know how to turn it down. So I was like, um, yes, but I'll be on this flight. Would you please uh, change the time? Like It was still the same day. She just moved it forward, I think. So I had to, I arrived in Nigeria from the U.S. like 11 p.m. And I had my interview 9 a.m. the next morning. So I only had a day notice and I only had a few hours to rest before I, I was pregnant also. So, so it was not an easy one. So I had to, I just did not want to turn down the offer to do the interview. So I had to take up the opportunity. I did the interview. She was quite impressed. She was uh, so the first thing that that she mentioned that attracted at my CV was the fact that I've worked on mobile health technology, which was my PhD project that I almost gave up on. So that was the first thing that caught the attention of my postdoctoral. Oh, imagine if I had given up then maybe I wouldn't get the opportunity. So I did my interview. It went well. She was even almost offering me, the, trying to encourage me to take the offer by increasing or giving me sort of amount that is not usual for postdocs. So, so that went quite well. And the same day, I got the outcome of the, uh, the application I had put in with my master's and PhD funder, which was also successful. So then I was at a, I was, I had to make a decision which of the two I would be going for. So I had two offers the same day, two postdoctoral offers the same day. So I eventually decided to go with, uh, with the other one, which is the one at Stellenbosch University, Cape Town, South Africa. And I did that for two years. It went well. I managed to complete all of the projects that I proposed. I published about I think 13 or 14 papers in two years. I had a baby too, so I can put that in. <laughs> so it was not uh, all fun. So I, I, I also even got uh, an award as one of the top 20 postdocs, outstanding postdocs at the university. So that was quite motivating and encouraging to me. And I also got an offer for renewal of that same postdoc. And at the same time, I got another offer for postdoctoral fellowship here in the U.S. And here I am now. I'm now in the U.S. as a postdoctoral fellow doing research around diabetes in in nursing college. So that has been my journey so far or my success story since I graduated from uh, my PhD program, so it's been back-to-back offers. Yeah, it's, it's, it's truly remarkable. It's truly remarkable, and it's also, you know, a reward of all the hard work you've put in over the years. You know, there's a tweet in front of me. I, I saw a tweet by your um, institute, uh, Global Surgery Institute in um, yeah. Solomon, oh. 
when uh, to bid you farewell. You say we are saying a sad farewell to our stellar postdoc fellow, Eitayo Olabi. In her two years with uh, CGS, she had a total of 16 publications and four uh, awards, including the Stellenbosch University Top 20 Postdoctoral Award. Good luck on your future endeavors. And that's truly, truly uh, remarkable. Again, noting that uh, you were raising your son uh, in South Africa during pandemic, that uh, there were lockdowns and people were unable to travel, you know, just keep putting, keep on putting in the work. And, I mean, and I mean, the reward is uh, guaranteed. And this reminds me of what my former boss used to say when I was working in Lagos. Then he would say, if the input is sufficient the output is guaranteed if mm. the input is sufficient the output is guaranteed so meaning if you put in all the work the reward is certain and and that's has truly been your story you've put in a lot of work and you continue to put in a lot of work mm-hmm. and the rewards keep flowing and flowing and flowing I would not like to end this podcast without asking you these uh, two more questions. And okay. one, one is, uh, it seems like you enjoy walking, walking, walking. Do you ever have fun? And if yes, how? Hey, <laughs> do I ever have fun? I think I'm. That's I never had fun. I never really had fun except for. A few times, maybe when I get dragged by friends to go out, so I, I never really had that time or opportunity. Maybe I had opportunity, or I, I don't know how to say it, but I never really had time in the past years to maybe decide to, to give myself a holiday, go on a fun ride, or even travel just to relax. But um, I think. It depends on the person also, and also the journey. My journey so far has not been uh, an easy one, so I barely even had time for fun. But I'm beginning to to uh, to change now because I I think there is also the importance of work-life balance. So while you're working, you must have you must have fun. You must do other stuff. You must try to have that balance. So I'm hoping that. In those new position that I am, or where I am now, that I sort of strike that balance between work and life, including family, including fun, including relaxing enough, and everything. So yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping to. Start yeah, you, having you fun. truly, you truly deserve it. Judging by you know the the effort you put in over the past uh, five years. Um, yeah. or even more than five years, maybe the past seven years. Seven so truly, years. Yeah, you truly, you truly, you, you decide to go on a holiday for for three months and just close your computer and just just be on a on on a beach somewhere, you know. Maybe do we get that chance? Do we get that chance? Yeah, I'm telling you. I mean, I mean, you can, you can, you can. I think it's about being intentional. You can just. Oh yeah. You know, You can just say no, 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 no. I just want to take a break from all this madness and decide. I'll, I'll, I'll consider that. Yeah, you should. You should. And I think um, my 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 final question 
uh, relates to an, an issue of interest to me as well. And um, okay. and the reason the reason why I'm posting this question is because I read a, a, an article authored by you know a friend of mine, um, uh, former client, former colleague of mine, or former cosmate of mine, you know, back then when I did my masters, and she. I wish I can remember the title of the article, but again, it's it's just about people considering ladies with PhD as overeducated, and uh, maybe they won't uh, make a good wife, or they will be too proud, and and then they, nobody will want to marry them. Or, <laughs> so, it, and and that that's just sort of the background to 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 my question. But my question. It's about marriage as well as PhD. For many people, in fact, I've had some of my friends uh, that have some interest in pursuing PhD tell me, now, Tony, I'd rather marry first before I do PhD. Mm -hmm. Um, And then some will say, even when they got married, some will say, oh my goodness, I can't go far because, you know, I'm a married (laughs) woman. I would, uh, I would have loved to get scholarship in Australia, but that's too far. So again, just sort of showing the conflict between, you know, societal expectations related to marriage and and degree, and where society sort of plays um, places uh, women. Yeah. Um, okay. So so that that's that's sort of the background to my question. But I do know, in fact, um, one of my guests on this podcast spoke about our own experience, how, you know, people were like, now that you finish your PhD, when are you bringing your husband? Right? Instead of congratulating, now again, just sort of showing that. So perhaps you can reflect on your own experience, you know, and then your advice for, for any young uh, ladies that are considering, considering uh, pursuing PhD and also have interest in getting married. Or for those ones that are already married but thinking about PhD, yeah, what would then be your advice for them? Perhaps just your advice for them. Okay. Um, so, so before I give my advice, I, I would sort of allude to that and say that very true. It's uh, quite different for women, and the expectations are quite different. And it all boils down to you not uh, you knowing what you want and not giving up. I could remember that. Even when I was doing my doctor after my master's degree, the next thing or the expectation was that I would go or come back home and get married. And I would, uh, my mom would remind me how all of our, all of our friends' daughters were getting married. And then I always remind her that we've all chosen, we are all different. And what our priorities are actually differ. So while they are achieving marriage for me, I wanted to achieve my PhD, and I'm still gonna achieve marriage when I want to. So it's not a, it's not a, it's not a competition. I wanted this, and I'm doing it for myself. So when your friends are reminding you that you should remind me to get married, then you must also, if you feel you want to re- respond, tell them that I'm also busy with something. I'm not idle. So it's it's not easy. And I've also heard a, a male friend tell me that. Oh, you people with PhD. He himself was doing a master's program, right? So he would tell me that you, 
I don't think someone can even marry you with this PhD that you have. You want someone with a PhD like you, or someone who is even beyond PhD level. So that sort of sometimes some men think like that, and you would hear such sentences. But that shouldn't deter you, and that shouldn't deter you. So from doing what you want to do or pursuing what you want to pursue, and people think that we PhD holders. We are probably proud, or you wouldn't make a good wife, maybe because of the time uh, that the time demands on the kind of work that we do. But that I think it all depends on the person, and it's less about how much education you have, or because you have a PhD, you can still be a good good wife. You can still be humble. You can still do whatever you want to do. So basically, my advice. But when I think about it. After I got married, I got married towards the end of my PhD, and I only had a child when I started my postdoctoral fellowship. So, looking back and like weighing how the journey has been for me as a married person, I I was like, and I am still thankful that I did my PhD when I did it then, because it's not easy juggling family with PhD demand. So I, I, I am quite thankful that I did my PhD at that time because maybe I would have taken longer if I was married at the beginning of my PhD, or maybe I would have been given excuses like some people do, or I would even drop out because of the family demands and expectations. You have to take care of your husband, take care of your child, take care of your home, take care of yourself. So my advice is, uh, I don't know. It depends on how much support you have, also. But irrespective, PhD is demanding, and for me, I enjoyed the, the 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 style that I used. And I wouldn't want to impose that on everyone. But if you have the opportunity to do your PhD before getting married, I would encourage people to do it. And if not, it's still doable. It's doable. You just need to manage your time better. And be dedicated to both your family as well as your PhD. So, don't get discouraged by what the society say or expectations of the society of women. So, you should just do what you want to do for yourself. That's basically what what I think. Do what makes you happy. If you think getting married makes you happy, go for it. If you think PhD makes you happy, go for it. If you think both makes you happy, go for it. But both are doable. But I would close by saying it's easier to, to do PhD before marriage than after. So yeah, that's my own experience. And that's what I think. Yeah, and I agree with you. I think um, it's important not to live our life based on what other people say. It's important to, mm-hmm. to try to pursue one's uh, uh, happiness. And uh, if you find happiness in marriage, like as you put it, fine. If you find happiness in uh, pursuing PhD, fine. If you want to combine both, fine. But uh, there, there is no rule, and, uh, and each person has, you know, has their own life to live and their own journey. And it's always good to to not compare yourself. Yeah, some people might have children uh, that are your mates, and you are doing your PhD, and then you might still make to also see, you know, give birth to children as well <laughs> later. So yeah, there is no timetable that you know we must have for them. Yeah. And that's uh, that's a good note to end our conversation. It's been truly, truly uh, interesting 
you know, just listening to your experience. I know your story pretty well, and given that um, <laughs> I wish I could share it. I well. could share it exactly as as it was or as it is. But yeah, a lot of things you can't even you talk about. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean, um, this is a safe, safe, safe space, and I'm sure, even from the ones you've told, there's still a lot of nuggets and a lot of uh, things for people to to learn. Um, yeah. And I must just say thank you, thank you so much for sparing the Thanks time for, to to, to talk about having me. And uh, maybe, maybe just uh, for the final notes, maybe there is any last word you want to uh, talk about any last word um, I think I would just say never give up never ever give up and whatever you conceive in your heart you can achieve whatever I you think of you can attain a lot of times we don't want to take those risks but you're never going to know what the outcome is going to be so my 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 motto or my slogan or what i go for is just 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 give it a try when i see an opportunity i apply for it not minding what the outcome is going to be so i think that's quite helpful we shouldn't look down on ourselves we should just have that approach of always trying things out you never know which one is going to work out and don't ever give up so thank you thank you thank you and hopefully i'll invite you again to to speak about um all that things you were unable to speak on today um okay. because I, I think uh you know just uh, one episode is not enough to tell your story you know so okay. hopefully there will be if i call on you to come <laughs> and speak again you will you will, you will honor, honor the, the invite right definitely yeah thank, thank you so much thank you